0: All right, those who are keeping the schedule, I'm up now, right? <laughs> I've been under, under the weather this last week, so thank you for those of you who've been praying for me, and uh, so forgive me for my raspy voice this morning. You might say a prayer for me as I start this sermon, that I'll make it through. But uh, encouraged by our children this morning, that was, uh, that was my charge that's our charge today to go tell it on the mountain, tell it at the beach, tell it in the cities, the highways, the byways that Jesus Christ is born. This morning, uh, I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 7:14. We'll look there, but we'll also look at John one one, and also look in Revelation as well this morning. And breaking tradition a little bit, <clears throat> we'll look at that passage here in a moment. I'm going to tell you my four points at the very beginning. We'll pray after that, and then we'll get going. So this morning, as we go, tell on the mountain. There are four points in your notes that we're going to look at today. Four key elements to our Christmas sermon. The chasm too great, the Christmas gift of grace, the Christ in the flesh, and the closeness of God. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we are so, so grateful for this day to gather together as your sons and daughters and friends to sing your praises, to sing these Christmas hymns to rehearse and remind ourselves of your greatness and your goodness of the gospel and why you came. Lord, it's been a blessed time already. We pray that our worship has been a fragrant offering to you. Lord, we hope that this morning we smell good. Lord, we're so grateful for you being our God. We're so grateful to you, Jesus, for coming in the flesh We're so grateful to you, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, for causing us to be born again, so so we may understand and know who Jesus is. This morning, we pray for your servant as he opens the word to your people. Lord, may I speak what is true of your Son, Jesus Christ, what is glorifying, what is good, what is helpful to these people. Lord, help us open our hearts to the truth of the gospel, especially for those who have yet to believe in you, Jesus. We thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You probably have a tradition in your house around Christmas, like we have a tradition at our house. We have a set number, kind of a, a canon of movies, right, that we, that we save every year. I feel like sometimes when we start watching, I feel like, didn't we just watch this two weeks ago? And Hayden or Linda will remind me, no, it's been a year since we've seen this movie. But we pull them all out. Usually it starts with, number one is usually, you know, white Christmas. That kind of starts the the, the the Advent year in a way of the movie watching. But one that we always watch, and this year we were blessed to go to a local theater that was showing some Christmas classics, is It's a Wonderful Life. And it was a, a great blessing this year to go to see it on a big screen and and sit there and watch as we see about George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart playing the character George Bailey, who lives in Bedford Falls and has a, and has a wonderful life. But it's amazing as you watch that episode, Would you watch that movie, you see his life begin to crumble, to unravel, to fall apart. And it's, in some ways, very hard to watch there's a scene where finally, at one point, he's at the end of himself, and he comes home distraught and depressed, in some ways licking his own wounds, self-pity and despair, and he loses it. He yells at his children. He yells at his wife. He, he asks, why in the world am I living in this horrible house, in this crummy little town? Why do we have, and this is, this is the the, the kicker, right? Why do we have so many kids? I thought of our church, you know. <laughs> Praise God, we do. But in a moment of despair, he, he disparages his own children, and he tells a little girl to stop playing that song. And then as he lashes out in anger, he tears up his dream, uh, an architectural piece that he's made of this bridge, and he kicks it, and he throws it, and the children begin to cry. He storms out of the house. I've been there. And you probably have too. And it's a wonderful life. That scene shows so poignantly, so profoundly, the depth of sin and despair. And you can see that something's been broken. Something's, something's injured, something's wrong. There needs to be restoration. And when you're in those situations, you also feel broken, distant, hurt. And for those who have you've hurt, you, you have a sense that I, I just want to, I just want to be with you again. I want to be with you, not just to be in the same room with you, but to be reconciled, to be one again. But there is a distance that cannot be bridged until one initiates, until one closes the gap. And it comes sometimes with a look. A word, a laugh, a hug, an apology, a tear, a relationship restored. That's how relationships work and restoration works between equals. But what if the one who is offended is God, the holy Righteous creator of the universe. How can that gap ever be bridged? How can that gulf ever be traversed? How can the chasm ever be crossed? How can sinful, finite flesh ever be reconciled with infinite deity? we find our answer this morning in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the most profound display of God's grand initiating grace, He bridges the gap. He traverses the gulf. He crosses the chasm. And that brings us to the the Christmas gift of grace. I recently, which when I say recently, my wife would probably remind me that it was three years ago. (laughs) Sometime in the past, I taught through Matthew's gospel with our community group. We probably spent a couple of years there. And Matthew shows his audience that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Roughly 20 times he says something like, like this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And he goes on and on. And it's like he's pointing to Jesus and saying, look, God has kept his promise. Garrett Kell, a pastor and theologian, has especially been helpful to me reflecting on the prophecy of Isaiah. there's a great article about this that, that I'm going to summarize in some ways in this point. He says, Most of Matthew's prophetic references are straightforward, but not all are. One of the most perplexing surrounds the virgin birth of Jesus in Matthew 1:21 to 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds, which means God with us. Matthew is quoting Isaiah seven fourteen, But when we turn to Isaiah 7, it, it doesn't sound a lot like Isaiah is preparing his readers to anticipate the Messiah coming through a virgin birth. What does Isaiah 7 promise? In background, Isaiah 7 introduces us to a wicked king of Judah named Ahaz, who had forsaken his father's legacy and led the nation to into idolatry. We see this over and over again, don't we, through the Old Testament, especially the book of Judges. This cycle of idolatry and crying out to God and idolatry and back and forth and so Ahaz's wicked reign was threatened by an alliance of two kings, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel. But rather than cry to God for help, Ahaz turned to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. Isaiah was sent by God to tell Ahaz that he would deliver Israel, and that he should ask God for a sign to confirm his promise. You see, Ahaz is stuck between, in many ways, a rock and a hard place, between Reza and and, and Pekka, And instead of looking up to God, he's banging his head against one rock over here or a hard one over here. And I'm sure you've never been there before, ever, have you? Stuck between a rock and a hard place, stuck between a, a challenging situation. On this side, you're banging your head over here. Over here, you're banging your head over here. And the one place you should be looking is up and humbling yourself and asking God for help. Ahaz didn't want God's help, so he declined the offer. He was attempting to appear humble, but it's not humble to disobey what God commands. But God gives him a sign anyway, and the sign wasn't just for him. It was also for the entire nation. Isaiah seven thirteen to 16 says this, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Listen to Isaiah speaking directly into his heart. Is it too little for you to weary men that you you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, and the you is plural, he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This child would serve as a sign to Ahaz and the nation. Before this child was old enough to discern between good and evil, both Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, would be gone. This child would be proof that God was present among his people to protect them. They could trust that neither Ahaz nor Pekah nor Rezin nor Tiglath-Pileser nor any other oppressor would be able to ultimately destroy God's people. God would preserve Judah and David's line through whom Messiah would one day come. I don't know if you guys remember Sesame Street. Some of you do. My favorite, one of my favorite characters on Sesame Street is... Grover, cute and lovable Grover, <laughs> <laughs> who also is the who also is the voice of Yoda. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you ever figured that out or not. Wait a minute, Yoda sounds a lot like Grover. <laughs> Same guy. And in some of my favorite episodes with Grover, he would come on and he would teach children about far and near. Now, if you remember that or not, he would run way back, and he would whoop, okay, yeah. <laughs> and he would say far, right? And they would run, do 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 do, 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 near, right? He would teach the difference in far and near. His lesson is helpful to learn basic orientation, but it's also helpful as a way to read prophecy. Prophecies often have a near or partial fulfillment that applies directly to their hearers, as well as far, an ultimate fulfillment that relates directly to Jesus. A while back, Linda and Hayden and I were in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And there you could look and you could see a mountain range ahead of you, and it looks like it's one range. It looks flat in a way. There's just this one range of mountains. But as you drive and get closer and closer, and you see there, you begin to see wait a minute, that's not just one flat range of mountains, but it's multiple layers. And I can remember one time standing up on the deck of this house, looking out over this scene of these summits in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And as my eyes begin to slowly adjust, we begin to count and say, oh my goodness, it's not just one, two, or three. There's 14 layers, 14 layers of one summit after another, after another. This is the case in Isaiah 7. The near or partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies debated. Isaiah never clearly tells us how God fulfilled... The prophecy, which leaves us guessing between at least four possibilities. Kell writes this, Some think righteous King Hezekiah would be a sign of God's faithful presence, but he wouldn't likely already have been born when this prophecy was given. Number two, some speculate that an unnamed child born to an unknown virgin would fulfill the promise. This is possible, but if the woman was unknown to both Ahaz and Isaiah, then her child wouldn't be much of a sign. Number three, some argue that no immediate fulfillment came in Ahaz's day and that Jesus is the only fulfillment. But this seems nearly impossible because the sign was said to be for Ahaz and he'd be long dead before Jesus showed up. And fourth, some argue that Isaiah's son, Mahir Shalal baz anybody need some names for new children, um, <clears throat> is, uh, would, be, would be the near fulfillment. In favor of this view is the similarity in language between uh, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. The child's birth is called a sign, and the fact that he once again refers, uh, he, he references Emmanuel in Isaiah 8.8 8. against this view is the fact that if the prophetess is Isaiah's wife, they, uh, then they had already had a child together. This means she would not have been a virgin, though she may still have been a young woman. Uh, more on this in a moment. Though not certain, um, Kel and I lean toward the fourth option as the least problematic But regardless of your conclusion, it doesn't change Matthew's use of the prophecy because the Holy Spirit assures us that the far or ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7 is found in the virgin birth of Jesus. Mary was the foretold virgin through whom God gave Jesus as the sign proving that he would be with his people to save them. How do we know that that that's true? Because Matthew says so. Matthew tells us this, that this is there to fulfill this prophecy. We know that Jesus is Emmanuel. The word translated virgin in Isaiah seven fourteen is alma, which can simply mean young woman, depending on the context. Yet inter- interestingly, Matthew, following the Greek Septuagint, uses the word parthenos, which can only mean virgin. Thus, Matthew's testimony of Jesus' miraculous conception followed a faithful Jewish interpretation of Isaiah's prophecy. Okay, two quick points about this. Why does this matter? First, it matters because we can trust Matthew's interpretation. Matthew isn't just searching for vaguely matching verses in the Old Testament and then projecting the virgin birth of Christ onto Isaiah's prophecy. Rather, Before there was a Christian doctrine of a virgin birth resulting in God with us, there was a Jewish doctrine of a virgin birth resulting in God with us. Matthew is telling us that Isaiah, whether he knew it or not, see 1 Peter 1.12, was speaking of the Messiah and that his prophecy is fulfilled, completed, accomplished, and realized in the miraculous conception of Jesus. We can trust Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah because his writings are inspired by the same spirit who inspired Isaiah's prophecy. Second, this matters because we can trust God's promises. What God has promised about, about Messiah to Adam, to Abraham, to Judah, and David rest on what he promises to Isaiah. The incarnation of God's Son is a sign to the world that God hasn't forsaken his people. He has kept his promises just as he always does. Joseph was to find comfort in the fact that Mary hadn't been unfaithful to him, but God had been faithful to his people by coming among them through Jesus. Now listen again to how Matthew describes the most profound display of God's initiating grace. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The chasm was great, impossible for sinful humans to cross, impossible to be reconciled to God, to be brought home by our own initiation. In our fallen sinful condition, we didn't have the will, the power, or the purity to approach a holy God. Hear me, in our own sinful condition, we don't have the will, the power, or the purity to approach a holy God. Here's how Paul describes that grand initiating gift. Galatians 4, 4 4-7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman Than an heir through God. Paul tells us four things in that passage. First, God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. For centuries, God's people waited expectantly for the Messiah, trusting in Isaiah's promise that a virgin would give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. And in the fullness of time, Jesus was born revealing that God keeps his promises. Second, Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law. Though born under the law, he came to liberate us from sin and death, adopting us as dearly loved children of God. His incarnation made this redemption possible. Third, through Christ, we are no longer slaves. Think about it. Those of you who still are steeped in sin, and that's All of us still sin, yes. But those of us who have trusted in Christ are no longer slaves to sin. A lot of people talk about their free will. Free will. Let me tell you a little bit about free will. You can only will what you want, you can only will what you want you're going to say to me, Pastor Kevin, I didn't want to get up this morning. Wait a minute, you're here. Obviously, you wanted more to get up and come to church than you wanted to stay in bed. We always choose according to our strongest inclination. You always choose according to your strongest inclination. And before Christ came, And the gospel was heard by us. We only had one inclination to sin. We were slaves to our free will. I used to tell my junior high kids, it's like this. Look, what's your favorite pizza? And they'd say, pepperoni. i say, great, let's go to eat pizza. Look at all these different kinds of pizzas you can get. What kind do you want? Pepperoni. Don't you understand? You're free. You're free to choose whatever you want. Choose it. Come on. Use your free will to choose what you want. What do you want? Pepperoni. (laughs) Do you understand it? You choose, you're free to choose whatever you want. What do you want to do before Christ? Before Christ came. What do you want to do? Sin. Come on. You can do whatever you want. You can love your neighbor. You can obey your parents. You cannot lust. You can do whatever you want. What do you want to do? Lust. I want to do what I want to do. Jesus came to set us free. No longer slaves. We move from slavery to sonship. We don't strive to earn God's favor, for we have freely received grace and sonship and now we relate to God as our intimate father crying, Abba, Abba, Papa, Daddy, the closest intimate thing that we can call a, a dad. And it's interesting, isn't it, that almost every culture has a, has a two-consonant sound for Dada, <laughs> Papa, Abba. In, uh, who, 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 can, who can tell me in an Asian language? There you go. See, <laughs> Pastor Kevin's right. <laughs> <laughs> and what do we have here? We call him Abba. I remember the first time that Hayden said, Dada. <laughs> wow, Whoa. dada. Fourth, we're adopted as heirs. We're adopted as heirs. We have eternal inheritance in God's kingdom. That baby in Bethlehem's manger is also the mighty king who has secured our glorious future. Christmas marks the pivotal moment when prophecy became reality. God entered the world to redeem and adopt lost sinners, displaying both his perfect timing and faithfulness. This is what we celebrate this Christmas, that baby prophesied by Isaiah Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is, point three, the Christ in the flesh. Here's how uh, John conveys it in his prologue John 1, 1 through 18. You might want to turn over there with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John's prologue illuminates the meaning of Christmas in light of Isaiah's prophecy. First, the eternal word existed with God and was God from the beginning. Yet he entered the world he made to dwell among us as the long-awaited Messiah, foretold by Isaiah centuries prior. Christmas marks the awe-inspiring moment when the divine word became flesh. Second, through the word, though the word gave light and life to all who would believe, tragically, the world did not recognize him. Even his own people rejected him. But, and there's that but there, It's the most beautiful part of the gospel. But we were like this. But we were in sin. But the world did not recognize him. But all who receive Christ by faith are granted the right to become children of God. His incarnation makes adoption into God's family impossible. Without incarnation, there is no adoption. Without incarnation... There is no adoption. Third, while the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate revelation of the invisible God, the Father. At Christmas, we celebrate that the glory of the one and only Son has been displayed to us full of grace and truth. And finally, through Christ's coming, we've received grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, we are abundantly blessed. The baby in the manger is the same word through whom all things were created. Yet he humbled himself to be born into this dark world to redeem us. Christmas is about the light arriving. Christmas is about the light arriving. Why is it that everyone is putting lights out on their houses? And not everyone. It's kind of bizarre. This is the most light-filled street. I live on Barland Avenue. (laughs) Barland Avenue has never had so many lights until this year, we've had a couple of people who've moved in, and and I feel a little bit like um, Christmas with the cranks, <laughs> because they got excited to they got excited to do those uh, PVC pole arch things. Have you seen those, right? You know, doggone that. What's that? Uh, you know, uh, Pinterest, right? <laughs> it's on Pinterest. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I've got to build a rocket ship in my backyard. Look, they show me how, right here. Everyone's doing. It. Anyway, so there's a PVC poles, and they and they wrap them with light, and they. And they go along and, and so God bless these neighbors. They even came to our house and like, we'll, we'll help you. It's, you give, it, give us 120 bucks and we'll put them up for you. And we're like, we've already got our lights up and we like it a certain way. So we actually, the, the trail stops at the Brian's house. But our house is totally, <laughs> it's decorated beautifully. It, it looks great. But it is a wonderful thing to walk in the, in the light at night to see all these beautiful lights twinkling out there. Christmas is about the light arriving, but tragically being rejected by his own people. Remember that all, but all who believe in his name, he makes children of God. This is the glorious news that we proclaim this Christmas. But there's more, but there's more. Because of these realities, someday we will experience the ultimate closeness of God. Point four. Revelation twenty-one, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear that? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The ultimate reality of God with us God Himself will be with them as their God, and because of that, what will He do for those who are with Him? Like any good father, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think of it: every time that child veers, stumbles, and falls, a little kid, and they hit the ground and scruff their knee and stuff, and they look around and Pastor Kevin, I've done it before out here. Literally, like last week, a kid hits the ground. I'm like, oh, here, let me, let me. And They're like, back off, get away, you know. <laughs> Not the mama, right? <laughs> you know, I need one person. I need mommy or daddy. You, you don't do. You don't work. Where's my dad? And that dad bends down and takes and, you know, kisses the boo-boo and wipes it away and wipes away the tears and everything is okay. That's our glorious future. When God is ultimately with with us, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, beloved friend, do not leave here today still under the wrath of an almighty God. Know him as Father. Know him as Lord. Let him wipe away your tears. And death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. John's glorious vision. Powerfully connects to Isaiah's prophecy and the meaning of Christmas. What we celebrate this Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, marks the beginning of God's promise to dwell with humanity being fulfilled. That baby born in Bethlehem is God with us, Emmanuel. Though the God who crafted creation condescended to be confined to a womb. This was merely the start of his mission, to be present with us. Through Christ's redeeming work, one day the old order will completely pass away. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Sin, mourning, pain, and death will cease. This is the future hope secured for us by our Messiah who entered the world that first Christmas. And Revelation here gives us a majestic preview of God's ideal dwelling with man. At Christmas, we celebrate God coming near. But one day, His presence will be total and unveiled. Face to face, we will behold His glory. We will belong to Him as His people. And He will be our God. You see, beloved friend, Isaiah's prophecy... Sets Christmas in motion. It's like the big red button that says launch. <laughs> Here it goes. Boom. Start. Begin. Install. <laughs> the virgin birth of the God man is the dawn of our final redemption. His incarnation sets into motion God's full restoration of his creation and creatures. One day all things will be made new. Christ's birth is the decisive arrival at the light. Of the light that dispels all darkness. At Christmas, this Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God dwelling among us as the guarantee of our eternal dwelling with God. At the beginning of this sermon, we ask a question How does one restore a relationship when the one offended is God? How can the gap ever be bridged? How can that gulf ever be traversed? How can that chasm ever be crossed? How can finite flesh ever be reconciled with infinite deity? By believing in the astounding, initiating grace of God. By trusting in the babe born in the manger who is Emmanuel, God with us, who would grow and live and die and be buried and be raised and ascend and who is coming again to completely reconcile us to God. And it's a wonderful life. God intervenes in George Bailey's life. If you recall the the movie, it's interesting how it starts. It starts with people all over Bedford Falls praying. It starts with his dear wife, Mary. I read a wonderful article this week that says, who's the real hero of It's a Wonderful Life? And this person was saying, it's Mary. (laughs) She's there. How does the movie start? With his wife praying for him. With his children praying for him. Why? Because he's lost. He's alone. He's out in the snow. He's contemplating giving away the greatest gift, one of the angels says, that God has ever given his own life. God Himself intervenes to bring George Bailey home for Christmas. You too can be home for Christmas because God has grandly intervened to bring his people home. Trust him. Put your faith in him. Cry out to him so that you too may have a wonderful life. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this time to sing your your glorious praises. I know that there are people in this congregation right now who are resisting the truth of your gospel. Lord, we depend upon you to break their hearts, to turn their hearts to you, to to know the joy and fullness of salvation in Christ. Lord, may they not be like Ahaz and, 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 and not cry out to you for help. To say, Lord, give us a sign, and, and Lord, you have given us a sign, that baby born in the major who is God with us. For those of us who know you, Lord, thank you for calling us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for restoring us to, to faith in you, to bringing us, to know you, to adopting us. Lord, for being our Father, God, Jesus, for being our dearest brother, Holy Spirit, for being our indwelling comforter. And, guide. Lord, help us even now. May you bless this Christmas. Make it one of the best Christmases we've ever had as we reflect on you and your greatness and your goodness. We love you today and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.